Good morning. My name's Brad. Let me ask you a question as you are sitting down. How many of you need a Bible today? Not just like, how many of you need a physical Bible today? Y'all can sit down. I'm going to toss it to you. Okay, come here. Come here. If you don't have a Bible at home, happy, happy September. Anyone else need one? We're going to go through this thing for a while today, so I just want to make sure everyone's following along, okay? If you, don't, if, you, if you just need one for today, here it is. And if you don't have one at home, take it. This is a Bible for you. We have literally 150 of them on the back pew. And so, uh, yeah, we got them. So if you need them, here it is. We're going to be in the book of Ezra. We're not going to waste time with a lot of introduction and a funny story today. I'm not funny. Uh, so we're just going to get right to it. If you have your Bibles, uh-oh, uh-oh, and if you don't, we have one for you. Open your book, your Bibles to the book of Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, the book of Ezra comes after the book of Chronicles. The book of Chronicles has two parts. Uh, I'm trying to get to my notes as smoothly as possible, but it is not working. So hold on one second. How are we doing? Have we found Ezra yet? Okay. Ezra, here we go. Ezra was written towards the end of what was called the Jewish exile. And, and if you have one of these Bibles, I'm going to give you a cheat code. It's page 216. Uh, this is the other thing. If you have one of these, I can give you page numbers. Ezra and his counterpart, Nehemiah, uh, who we'll get to a little bit next week, are two of the most unpopular books in the Bible. Uh, we don't really go to Ezra and Nehemiah when we are looking for a devotional time. You can stack those up there with like Leviticus. Uh, but we don't go there often. They're not leading stories. They don't have the, the flashy things like Moses and the river and, and the Red Sea. They don't have the miracles like Elijah. Ezra is a Bible nerd uh, through and through. Uh, that's his whole story. He's a geek, and it's kind of awesome for it. If you look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a construction manager, one person called him. Uh, and that's exactly what he does. He rebuilds. There's another character in there, Zerubbabel, who's more like a church planter. And all three of these characters, Zerubbabel's in the first part of Ezra, Ezra is throughout all of them, and Nehemiah comes in, Nehemiah. And, and so these people are the main characters that we see in this corner of Scripture. There are people who are passionate about helping others see God in a new way that has never been seen before. They love God, and they want to do anything to get others to do the same. They try their best to make Israel come back and fall in love with God as much as they have. And as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah this week in your quiet time, perhaps, uh, what you'll find is it doesn't work. Uh, they do all of this thing, and I'll spoil alert, it was unsuccessful. Uh, the people did not renew their passion towards God. They, they stayed in rebellion, and they stayed there for a while. But we'll get to that maybe next week sometime. Ezra and Nehemiah are meant to be one book. We decided to split them up, but if you look in the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, they're one book and two names, Ezra, Nehemiah. And they start talking about the return from Israel from exile. Exile began in 597 B.C. underneath this king. We're, we're getting nerdy for a while. Hopefully it'll make sense. Uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar, which is a great name for a dog, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took them in 597 and began pulling them out of Israel just a few of them, not everybody, the best and the brightest, the culture shapers, he took to Babylon. And it went on from 597 to 586 when he finally destroyed the temple. This was a long time ago when it did part this. Then they returned. And so the first part of this, this, this book is about regathering the people of Israel. 
The second middle part of the book is you can see them starting to grow together. This is Ezra's, like, hey, we're going to grow. We're going, Ezra wants people to discover God, to, to fall in love with him, be passionate about it, and learn more about them, so that is grow. And then Nehemiah gets people to work, which is kind of like go, which is really weird because that's the series we're in. Oh, it's weird how the Bible works like that, right? Gather, grow, go. We do this every year. Uh, it's a time for us to recenter what we're here for, what we're doing, and where we're going. And so usually we kick this off a week from now when everyone's back in school, but we're going to be missing on the 19th because we won't have the space. So we're going to do our go when everyone else is doing their, uh, that's their grow because we won't have the space. So we're going to actually go. We're going to go do some things, okay? So this is where we're going these next three weeks. We're going to be here learning about Ezra and Nehemiah. These books at the end of exile were written to people and trying to get them to come back from their abandonment of God that landed them in exile. The prophets talked about what happened in exile. Uh, we read about exile as a consequence, uh, but it's a consequence. But as you read the prophets again in your quiet time, maybe later this week, you see that Israel was never abandoned through exile. It was not the end of the story. God was still going to use them to fulfill the promise that he made way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Again, if you want to read that in your quiet time too, that's fine. Then after 70 years, the promise was this, 70 years and I will bring you back from exile and we'll begin again. God had always had in mind that this consequence they were facing for turning away from Yahweh, God, was going to have an ending. There was always going to be hope. And you find this in every last part of the prophet. There's always this remnant this offshoot, this stump that grew into a tree is what uh, uh, Amos calls it. You can see it in Ezekiel. You can see it in Isaiah that there's going to be a time where there's consequence and isolation and desolation, but there will be a return and there always is a return. I think these books speak to our situation pretty clearly given what's happening in our world today. It hasn't been 70 years, but 18 months has felt like it, correct? It's felt a little bit like exile. It's felt like a lifetime. Seventy years that Jeremiah talks about wasn't necessarily on the money. It was, a, it was a symbol. Seventy years was a symbol of a generation, a lifetime. If you go into exile when you're one, you come back and you're 70. And that times, that wasn't, didn't leave much life left. And so this is what uh, Jeremiah is getting at. This has, exile was supposed to last a lifetime. Now, when I say exile in our generation, in our culture, it doesn't really mean much. We don't hear much about exile, and so we don't really get it. Exile, to, to define it in a few different ways, exile is about being in a foreign place where you don't know anything. However, it's not just about location. Sometimes you can feel like exile in your own skin. You don't feel like yourself. Exile can be a state of your soul. Exile can be a place where you find yourself a stranger, a stranger to yourself, a stranger to others, and sometimes even a stranger to what God is doing in and around you. Exile is also a place where you forget. For some, exile has meant not gathering for church on Sundays, either in person or online. For others, exile meant that your relationship with God has grown, grown stale. Exile has meant that you are no longer growing deeper. In fact, God's over there somewhere, and you've forgotten about him. Still others, exile has kept you from sharing your gifts 
with people around you. Now, I don't want to start a conversation of whether or not churches should be here or whether or not you should be here instead of online. That's not what I'm getting at. Don't, I, I get a lot of email if you want. We can talk, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm wanting to get at but is for the past 18 months, many people have been in exile. Some have had no choice. Some have had all the choice in the world. The difference between being, the difference is this, the exile of no choice, what we see in, or the exile of choice, there, there's two different ways to get it, and I'm fumbling everything because I want to be careful here. There's a difference between being disconnected, and there's a difference between being disobedient. For the people of Israel, their exile became, came because they were disobedient. While sometimes disobedience leads to disconnection, there are times when our circumstances, like a global pandemic, will cause people to put themselves in a sort of exile. A disconnection needs to take place. The effects of what's gone on for the past 18 months are completely out of everyone's control. For most of us, many of us, this might be the most disconnected you've ever felt from others and from God. Look around you. Families have been ripped apart in the last 18 months over political lines, philosophical lines, communities have been shattered, friendships have been forgotten. We're all in a sort of exile. And the same call that goes out to the people of Israel in, in the beginning of Ezra is the same call that comes to us. Hey guys, it's time to regather. It's time to come back. And if you're here this morning, I'm glad you're here. If you're online this morning, I'm glad you're online because there's some news. God's inviting all of us back from exile. He's inviting you back to remember that his promises are still real. His promises are still valid. He's inviting you to a deeper sense of community. He's inviting you to experience something you've never imagined. And he's inviting you to reconnect with him and his church. Each one of us is invited to something. And there are three, these three movements that can take us one step away from the exile we find ourselves in. The first one I want to look at is the call to remember. Because when we gather as people, when we gather as worshiping together, the first thing we do is remember. We sing songs that remind us of how good God is. This is what heaven feels like. This is what freedom looks like. This is a memory thing. Yeah, the choruses get repetitive. Yeah, we get it sometimes. But it's reminding you. What is true about God? Look what happens in the first, first verse of Ezra. I'm going to read it on here because I'm going blind and I can't read that right now. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, hold on to that, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. I wish I had a realm. And also put it in writing. Okay, so God promised something here. Let's make some deductions. God promised something. Back in the beginning of this, through a man named Jeremiah, who writes one of the saddest books in the Bible with one good verse. Everything else in that book is really sad. You can read it about it in your quiet time. Uh, Jeremiah says, you're going to go away for 70 years. In Jeremiah 29.10, it's not the one you put at the end of your email. This is a different one. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now, we can read this and think, 70 years? That's when we stop, right? I'm going to go away for 70 years? I had this discussion similar with my five-year-old this morning. He wanted all the donuts, okay? Not just the two that he gets, the two halves, so one. He wanted them all. 
and I made him stop and say, you have to wait for everybody else to get a donut before you can have your fourth, okay? And he goes, everybody else? He didn't hear me say, there's going to be a fourth, you just have to wait, okay? So when we read this, it's easy for us in our life situation to say, 70 years, and we forget something. I'm going to bring you back. To put this into perspective, we've been at this thing in the whatever pandemic for like 18 months, right? Give or take four, okay? And so 18 months. So imagine 68 and a half more years. Think you can do it? No, I could not. Imagine that, 68 and a half more years. I couldn't do it. But this happens to us all the time. Things come into our lives and they cause us a temporary pause. We tend to focus on that pause instead of the larger picture of what God might be doing. We forget. We forget easily. I forget a majority of things in a matter of minutes. It takes me a long time to get names. I, I forget my neighbor's name and I talk to him like every day. It's just one of those things. We're forgetful. Carrie sends me to the store and she sends me with a list of demands that in order to regain entry into my house, I have to come back with these things. I forget the list all the time. I back out. As soon as I turn left on the street to get to the, the road, I've forgotten the majority of things. We forget. It slips our mind, and as we get older, it slips even more. It just starts happening. Imagine if I can forget that in a matter of 10, 15 minutes. What am I going to forget in 70? 70 years. These people are in Israel for 70 years in solitude and in exile. You tend to forget. Why? Because you don't, you're not reminded of your story. And when things get hard, we tend to forget. Why? Because we put our head down and just get through it. And when we're walking like this through life, we forget everything else that's going around us. And for the majority of people, at least in Ezra's day, and I don't know, maybe it's happening today, We've been so focused on just making it that we've forgotten everything around us. We forget. Our head is down and we're missing what God is doing. I miss what God is doing around me. I miss what God is wanting to do in me. And I forget what God wants me to do for him in the future. And so we forget. Just in the past month, we've seen a lot of pain. It if you've watched the news, you've seen a lot of pain. If you've walked down the street here in Ballard, you've seen a lot of pain. There's a lot of confusion, and it's making people wonder, and it's making people forget. There was a recent poll that was done by a group that said one-third of the church by the end of this pandemic will walk away from their faith. Why? They've been isolated. They've forgotten. And I read that a few months ago and went, no, that's not true, but it's happening when we allow circumstances around us, when we allow our exiles to speak louder than the voice of God, we forget the story of what God is writing. And after some time away, we tend to forget that God still has a use for you. When all the voices around us are doom, gloom, and fear, we can try, but they speak louder than the voice of God at times. We forget that God's still working, and we focus on the 70 years instead of the verse that comes next. 70 years, you will be in exile. Verse 11, you probably know this one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. 
One of the main reasons why we need to gather together is so that we don't forget. We need to remember that there's a promise attached to the 70 years, that God has hopes, God has plans. And it's, you know, we, we can get in trouble and make this verse completely ours, but the view that we have with Scripture is we can see what God said to a group of people and take hope that God will do that again, right? So you can't take this home and say, this is mine. No, but we know that God can do this. And God does bring hope. God does have a future. And we can grab onto it, and, and it brings hope to us. Jeremiah's hope is for us, too. And why we gather is so I can look at you and go, Jeremy, we have a hope. Yeah, the world out there is crap. Sorry. It, it's not good. It's poop. But there's hope. This isn't it. This isn't the story. This isn't the end of the story. Difficult times cause us to forget. Hard times cause you to withdraw. And what the scriptures tell us is to fight that temptation. Because when you withdraw, you forget. We gather to remember, but we also gather to have community. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. She, she writes to a group of Christians who were going against major persecution, and the persecution was just ramping up. And, and as, the pers- as she writes, she gets to chapter 10, and she's gone through this amazing picture of who Jesus is. He's our high priest, and, and, and proving this point, and then gets to chapter 10, verse 24, and says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So what's happening? They're having persecution, not persecution like what we call persecution, but real persecution, and it's coming. Okay, we can read stories about similar types of persecution and what's happening in Afghanistan. This is about to happen in Hebrews. Okay, now she's writing this to, to, to this group and says, look, it's going to happen. But when it does happen, don't stop worshiping God. Not just in private. There's a place for private worship. But what the point is here is don't stop worshiping God with other people because you need to have a community around you. There's a danger that's being addressed in here, and we'd be good to listen to it. The danger is that we think Christians can live this life all by ourselves. It was present in the early church, and I have a feeling it's still present in today's church. We think that we can just be a solitary Christian sitting on our own, doing whatever we want. It doesn't work that way. This verse warns against it. Sometimes it's easier to do the solitary thing. Sometimes it's appropriate to do the solitary thing. However, it's not meant to become a habit. And my assumption is now it's starting to become a habit in our culture, not just in the last 18 months, but in the last 24 or 36 months to do this solitary thing where we withdraw and we get our Christianity through a podcast or we listen to it on the way to work. And that doesn't work. The writer of Hebrews says, hey, you're isolating that's not what this is about because every Christian needs the encouragement of other Christians. Everyone who comes through the door of a place of worship, whether it's in a, a house church, whether it's in this church, whether it's on the park out, or the yard out here or in a park down the street, everyone who comes to a church needs to be encouraged. And we gather together and we encourage each other by showing us real life 
flesh and blood encouragement to the people around you. The fact that we see people with our own eyes is an encouragement. Gathering together along with, the, with a word of encouragement isn't just something that we can like do every once in a while. No, it's absolutely needed. The very first part of this verse said stir one another up, right? It said stir each other up. That word stir means to annoy. It means to bug you. It means to put my finger in your side and tell you it's like the little brother that I am, right? Just saying, come on, come on, you can do better. You can do this. You can do this. Think of a coach who's yelling at you when you have given all that you have and they say, 10 more minutes. And you're like, what? No, this is stupid. But this is what the writer's getting at. Come on, I'm going to push you. I'm going to annoy you. I'm going to in- encourage you to remember and love and then to do love and good deeds. Every single one of us needs that encouragement. It starts with annoy one another towards love and good deeds and then encourage us comes at the very end of verse 25. Annoy them and encourage them to keep going. I like the way this translation puts it it's from the, the Passion Version. It says, this is not a time to pull away. This is not a time to neglect meeting together as some have formed the habit of doing. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day coming or dawning. We gather to remember. We gather to be encouraged by those holding on to the same hope that we're holding on to. Our community needs to remind us who we are, who God is, and who we belong to. We're reminded that God is trustworthy when we gather together. And it's a theme that you'll see in every single part of the scriptures. God is trustworthy. It's written, if you want to look in 1 Corinthians 10.13 and 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Those are ones right around Hebrews in case you don't want to turn too far this week when you're doing your quiet time. God is trustworthy. This is a lesson that my family learned during the, this, this 18 months. We need people. We need people around us. We need folks to live, to, to walk life with us, even though it's confusing, sloppy, hard, uh, messy, uh, risky. We need people around us. We need community around us. The pandemic has stripped a lot away from all of us, but we've noticed that over time, it's also added some relationships that we didn't have because we didn't know the vital need for other people in our lives. And for some of us, we've been living Lone Rangers way too long. And now's the perfect time to jump in and find a community that speaks truth over your lives, reminds you of what God is doing. Friendships and community, and I'm not being dramatic, can save your life. Have you noticed in the last 18 months, the suicide rate is climbing, even amongst 5 and 12-year-olds? It's climbing. Why? Isolation. We need people. The drug addiction rate in Seattle is climbing. Pornography, climbing. Why? Isolation is not good. We are not meant to be by ourselves. This is what the writer of Hebrews is going at. Hey, you need each other. You need to gather to remember. You need to gather because we need community. And you need to gather to reconnect with God. If you have your Bibles or the ones i just given you, flip over to Ezra chapter 3. It's a couple pages over from, uh, from that last one, Ezra chapter 1. 
Ezra chapter 3, a man named Joshua, his dad was a guy named Josedek. This isn't the same Joshua that's mentioned in Exodus. This is quite a number of years later. It's just, it's a good name, so they decided to use it again. And then a man named Zerubbabel, uh, his dad was named Sheatiel. And, and their associates, they return back to Israel or to Jerusalem, and they begin to build an altar of God in order to sacrifice burnt offerings on them in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, who was the man of God. Then in verse 4, Ezra writes this, Then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles, which is required uh, with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for that day. After that, they presented a regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those who brought free will offerings to the Lord. They started worshiping. They got to Israel, they looked around, and they began to worship. Now they offered, these are standard sacrifices that you can read in Leviticus 23 in, in your quiet time this week if you really want to do Leviticus. Uh, but they, this is what they started to do. They started going back to the worship they knew because in exile, they weren't really permitted possibly to worship like this. And so it had been a while since they worshiped. And it mentions several types of offerings, burnt offerings and voluntary offerings. Now, these are unique that we look at them here. Both of these offerings have one thing in common. The one thing is this. You put it on the altar, and you get nothing in return. You come to the, sac- you come to the altar, place your sacrifice on it, light it, walk away, it all goes to God. None of it comes back to you. There are some sacrifices that you can read about in Leviticus when you're in quiet time again. And he comes to it, and you could take bits and pieces off and have like a family meal with what was left. But the main point of it goes to God. Now, here's why I bring this up. This wasn't the kind of worship where we walk away saying, I didn't get anything from it. Yeah, that just didn't speak to me. Uh, It just wasn't my cup of tea, or I don't know, it was weird. That guy's bald and he sweats a lot. I don't know. That wasn't said here. This worship that was given was a worship that wasn't anything for them. They came, worshiped, left it all on the altar, as we would say, left it all on the court, and gave it all back to God. It was for God, not them. It's key that we look at this because there there is something that says, I'm not going to go to worship because I just don't get anything of it. And sure, you should be fed from your church. Absolutely, there's room for that. But when we become the center of worship, we will always veer towards ourselves and away from what God is doing. God speaks to us in worship. We come here to worship. We go to church to worship. We leave everything, God. It's not about us. They reconnect with with God that day. They didn't reconnect with themselves. Sure, there was community around them. They got together, they worshiped, and they worshiped, and they remembered God. And then they sacrificed or celebrated the the festival of Sukkot or the festival of tabernacles where they would each start camping in their front yard. And they built these tents and they said, for 40 days, we're going to live in our front yard. Why? Because we're going to remember what God did for us in 40 years in the wilderness. We worship God for God's sake. And then we're going to remember what God did for our sake. Why? Because the story's not over with yet. He can do it again. 
Now, I skipped verse 3 on purpose. If you noticed, you get a donut afterwards as long as you don't take Judas. Uh, there's a donut there uh, for you. In the, but verse 3 is important, and I wanted to look at it specifically. It says this, Despite their fear of the people around them, they built an altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and in the evening. And here's why I bring it up. There will always be an excellent reason always an excellent reason why we shouldn't go to church. There's always a reason why you should stay home. There's always a reason why the snooze button looks great or the cup of coffee just tastes too good. There's always a reason to stay disconnected. There's the past 18 months, this has been, uh, 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 before these last 18 months, there's always been a good reason not to gather together. I'm tired. I was out late brunch is better. Roger and I would rather watch the tournament today in PGA to see who actually wins. There's always a reason. At the same time, there's a reason to stay home. There's also a risk in gathering. There's always going to be something to be concerned about when we come to church. There will never, never be a risk-free environment in your life. Never. Not 20 months ago, not 20 months from now, not 20 years ago, not 20 years from now. There's always going to be risk. Now, the return from exile for these people was majorly risky. Many of them were walking back into Israel for never, having never lived there before. There's no walls around. There's predators everywhere. It was a great risk for them to come back to Jerusalem that day. But they made the, they made the, the risk. They took it. And they got the reward for it. It was a hard change. It was scary, but it was worth it. Now, just because there's a risk doesn't mean that we be foolish. Just because there's a risk of a lightning strike doesn't mean that you run around with a, with a metal pole. It doesn't mean you become stupid with it, okay? There's always a risk. It doesn't mean that you become foolish. But risk doesn't mean that you stay away because of fear. Despite their fear, the people gathered. Despite their fear, the people built. Despite their fear, the people worshipped. In the face of a host of many reasons why they shouldn't have done this, they did it anyway. Now, I don't think that they were foolish, but I also know that they were afraid when they did this, but they didn't let the fear stop them. And the beauty that we see again in Scripture is we read all their stories and we can apply them to ours. There's always going to be risk. The call of Israel is to say, come back. There's risk involved, but come back. It's time to regather. God is still writing your story. The 70 months is over. If you can make it back to Jerusalem, get back to Jerusalem. Let's be wise about it. Let's be aware of our, our surroundings. But let's go back. For some of us, those outside this room, those online... It's not wise for you to gather in person. That's fine. That you do what you have to do. It's not wise for you to be here. I get it. For others of us, we've let this time create in us a bad habit to stay away or find something else. And you're missing what God is doing. Online is great. And I might take a lot of heat for saying this. It's time to come home. It's time to come back. Be wise about it. Don't be foolish. But it's time to come home. All of us 
need to regather because all of us need to be reminded, especially now. What's the line that we say in these unprecedented times? We need to be reminded that there is a hope within us and we need to share that hope with the world around us. We need to remember. We need to remember that we're not alone. We need to remember the hope that Jesus gives to us. We need to remember that though our story might suck now, there's still hope attached to it. And then we need to remember to take that story out to the world around us who is starving for hope. One of the rhythms that uh, Jen has encouraged me to get back into when it comes to uh, church is communion. Communion is remembering. Now, I, I grew up Quaker. We don't really do communion. That's just the way that I was raised, so it's just never been a part, and so she's argued with me about it and some other people, and so it's like, fine, we'll do it. Leave me alone. Gosh. But what communion is, is simply us remembering. It's remembering that our story is shaped by the cross and what Jesus did on the cross for us. Our story doesn't end with our bad day, bad month, bad 18 months. Our story is continuing. And when you take communion, you realize, no, Jesus died for me and for the people around me so that they could have hope too. When we gather, we worship, we remember, we're connected with one another, and then we reconnect with God. So today, as Dylan comes back up and, and, and uh, Bridge and Lynn, as they come back up and, and we worship again, pay attention to the words that are being sung. I don't know what song's coming up, but pay attention to them. What are they reminding you of? And when you're ready, communion is available for you to remember what Jesus has done for you. This is why we gather together. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that we can gather together, that there are measures put in place, that there are guidelines to follow, that there are things to do so that we can gather together and worship you and be reminded of you, what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do. That you have a hope that you have a plan that you're working throughout history and through our lives to bring us to that end. And so, Lord, would you remind us today We thank you for the cross and it reminds us of Jesus so that we might have eternal life with you. It reminds us of heaven. And in Jesus' name we pray.